Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with all of you. And as Jan said, a special happy Father's Day to you dads. I'm a father of three boys whom I love dearly. And uh, in fact, two of, two of my three boys are actually going on the DR mission trip. And I encourage all of you, if you have never gone on a mission trip, and if you want to have your life change and, and your faith deepen, there's nothing better than going on a mission trip. So I encourage you to do that. And on a day like today, you know, when I was here a month ago, I was here on Mother's Day. And a, a day like today can um, bring up some conflicted emotions, uh, particularly if you didn't have a great relationship with your dad. And that was my case when I was growing up. I, I really couldn't stand my dad. But the last 15, maybe 20 years of his life, he died in 2008, um, we actually had a really good relationship. And of course, today, uh, being Father's Day, you know, we hope that it'll be a meaningful day uh, filled with either memories of your dad or that it will be a day where you create new memories with him. And I thought that today we could do something a little fun to kind of uh, get things going this morning. So you dads, this is a participation exercise, okay? I'm going to ask a series of questions. You don't have to stand up, but just simply raise your hand if that is you, okay? So the first question, and um, just so you know, uh, we have two $25 uh, gift cards to Shields, so it kind of ups the ante a little bit. So raise your hand if you've ever... He's already... Man... All right, here's the question. Raise your hand if you've ever said to your children, does money grow on trees? Just about every dad's hand should be up. Yeah, yeah. Raise your hand if you are known as dad the bad joke guy. Okay, okay. Um, now, this one is totally shame-filled, and we will make fun of you. Raise your hand if you have not given your wife flowers in the last month. You, all of you in the naughty corner right now. All right, raise your hand if you have ever hung drywall. Wow, there's the men among us right there. <laughs> raise your hand if your favorite pastime is embarrassing your children. That's one of my things. I totally love that. All right, raise your hand if you're a dad or a granddad over the age of 70. Okay, how about over the age, now we're not done, how about over the age of 75? Okay, how about over 80? Okay, we got two, two in the running here. How about, uh, are, in, are either of you over 85? Okay, how about 84? 83? 82? 81. Okay, 
I'm going to let you two, okay, 81, so, uh, but you're not 82. You're not 82. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you guys figure this out. Jan will help you figure out who's the oldest guy here. The oldest dad. And then I, I don't want to leave you young bucks out. So if you're a dad of a child younger than one, raise your hand. I, where are you? Okay, right back there. How about, if, is your baby younger than six months? Well, it looks like you are the only one. Okay, Jan, this is for, he definitely needs this for sure, doesn't he? Yeah. All right. Well, hey, happy Father's Day to all of you. All right. Well, today we are going to venture into yet another story that if you've been a follower of Jesus, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have heard this story. It's the story of Jesus walking on water. And I want to I give a heads up to everyone that I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, going back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament in this Mark passage. So I want you to hang on, try to follow along with us. I don't want anybody to get lost. But before we get to that, I want to go back to the main purpose of Mark's gospel as he explains right out of the gate in Mark chapter 1. Now, and this is important for all of us to remember, especially in light of today's passage. In chapter 1, Mark says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, that's quite a statement, isn't it? It's a statement that would prove to be very challenging for Jesus' immediate followers to understand. But nevertheless, that is kind of our guiding statement for us as we continue our journey through the gospel of Mark. Now, we also have to remember the context in which this water-walking episode took place. Remember uh, what we learned about last week, the feeding of 5,000. So today's story happens immediately after that. So let's read together, beginning in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the, mid the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Now, there's a lot to unpack here in these uh, five short verses, but a few interesting things for us to point out here. And first of all, is that the Sea of Galilee is a fairly large body of water. It's the lowest freshwater lake on earth. It sits at about 700 feet below sea level. It's eight miles wide by 13 miles long. And it's not a terribly deep lake. Its uh, average depth is about 
25 feet with a maximum depth of, of around 140 feet. So when Mark writes that they are in the middle of the lake, we can read that to mean that they're about three or four miles offshore. The other thing to note is that the Sea of Galilee, because of where it's located geographically, is prone to severe storms. With the offshore winds coming in from the west, the Mediterranean, the sea is also surrounded by mountains to the east. So this creates a climate where cool air meets hot air, and all of this can make for some pretty severe weather. And that's what we read here. Just like if you remember back to Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calmed the storm, here again, we have yet another chaotic storm on the water where it's looking pretty perilous for the people in the boat. Now, we can also tell that these guys obviously believed in ghosts because they thought that Jesus was one. And as I'll explain here in just a moment, seeing ghosts was not beyond belief considering what these guys believed about the Sea of Galilee. Now, the other thing to note is that this is the same scene that is depicted in Matthew chapter 14 with one notable difference. One notable difference. In this Mark passage, Peter isn't mentioned walking on water, whereas in the Matthew passage, he is. So why the difference? Why would that be? Well, it could, could be for a couple of reasons. Because uh, Peter was such an important influence on Mark and writing his gospel, it could be that Peter insisted that Mark omit him walking on water so as not to bring undue attention to him. It could also be that Peter didn't want Mark to mention it because, as we know, Peter ultimately fell under the waves. And the thought is that Peter was simply embarrassed by what had transpired. And he's like, you know what, Mark, let's, let's leave that piece out. Now, I also have to confess to you that there are two verses in this passage that I have had a really difficult time with. Now, we all know, as we read scripture, that there are some things that don't always make sense. There are things that are just plain weird. But here's the thing for all of us to remember, and that's to take our cue from the theologian, Dr. Michael Heiser, who said, if it's weird, it's important. And as we'll see here, there are some weird things in this passage. But this is a good thing for us to remember as, as we dig into our own personal Bible study to really dig into the weird stuff. Because the weird stuff in a passage is usually where we will find a great deal of meaning. And the first verse in this passage that is weird and doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me is in verse 48, where it says he was about to pass them by. What is that about? I, I read this. I don't know if you read it also. And I'm, I'm thinking, you mean to tell me that Jesus sees his buddy struggling out on the lake in the middle of a storm. He walks out toward them and he's just gonna pass by them? That doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I've researched a half dozen 
commentaries. I've spoken with different pastors, Dr. Foth, Jeff Lucas, Brent Cunningham. I've watched sermons, all that try to gain an understanding on this verse. I've even come across Augustine's take on this. He says that Jesus wanted to pass by them in order to get them to cry out so that he could come to their relief. I think that's just an awful explanation. I like the explanation much better of this other author who writes, Jesus nonchalantly walking on water, passing the disciples, that projects to me a sense of humor. One could almost picture him snacking on an apple or whistling a tune as he passes by. This terminology, pass by, is actually used to illustrate how God comes close to and reveals himself to people. Now, I know it's a weird phrase, but it means that God is coming near to people to show them his glory. And we see an example of this going all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, where God and Moses, they're having a chat. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. That's a pretty bold thing to say to God, isn't it? And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to what? To pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on those whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you may not see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory, what? Passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Another example of God coming near to people is found in 1 Kings, where God and Elijah, they're talking, and God tells Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. So although you and I, we know pass by is literally meaning to miss someone or to go around, in Scripture, it actually means to come close. So Jesus isn't going to pass by the guys in the boat in the middle of the lake. He's actually going to come near to them to show them his glory. Now, we have to have the Old Testament in mind when we read this because that is what the first century reader would have known. And here's something for all of us to be reminded of, which is that if you want to understand the gospel accounts better... It's important to have some kind of understanding of the Old Testament. The Gospels will make much more sense if you read them through the filter of the Old Testament. Now, one thing that I do know for sure is clear in this scene, and this is the first point in your outline, is that Jesus is revealing himself as God. See, Jesus walking on water, this is known as a theophany. Theophanies are when God reveals himself in physical form. I like this one definition where it says a theophany is an appearance of God 
an intense manifestation of the presence of God that is accompanied by an extraordinary visual display. Another example of a theophany is again with Moses when God goes to him in the burning bush. You remember that scene? God is speaking out of the bush. The bush is on fire and yet it doesn't burn up. That's a theophany. And a hallmark of any theophany other than God showing up is that people are always afraid. That makes total sense, right? But the broader purpose of a theophany is they illustrate how God has a strong desire to be with people. So he manifests himself in ways that scares the daylights out of all of us, but they are always intended to remind people that God is present with them. All right, let's keep reading. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. In the midst of this storm, Jesus calls out to them and says, take courage. And here's the second point in your outline. Because Jesus is with us, we can have courage. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been caught up in a storm on the lake or out in the ocean. I have not, but from what I've heard, it is a barrage on the senses. It's very loud. There's thunder and lightning that's happening. And then you have the sound of the wind and the waves. This is all pretty noisy stuff, isn't it? And Jesus is speaking to them above all of the noise. And the first thing that he tells them in the midst of this terrible storm isn't that, hey, boys, it's going to be all right, or fellas, keep rowing harder. No, the first thing he tells them is take courage. Take courage. In the midst of what seems like a hopeless situation, he says, take courage. Well, why should they take courage? I mean, they've been rowing all night. The wind is against them. They're not making any progress. They're tired. You remember earlier in the day, they had fed how many people? 5,000 people. I mean, just think of all that went into that kind of production. And now here they are in a boat, in a storm. They're not, the wind's against them which means that they're probably frustrated. I imagine they have short fuses. There's a lot of bickering going on. Why would they take courage in this situation? Because Jesus says, it is I. When you read this, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, hey, fellas, it's it's me, your buddy, Jesus. But a more accurate translation is that Jesus here is invoking the divine name, I am. And this is the same language, again, going back to the Exodus account with Moses and the burning bush. In that account, God is telling Moses that he's going to rescue the Hebrews by taking them out of Egypt and leading them into the promised land. And God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh to request permission to leave. But Moses said to God, who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Well, Moses, he said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? It's a fair question, right? What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am is the name of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of a weird name. But I am is in present tense, meaning I am is always in the now, and yet he is always eternal. And what you and I can glean from this passage of scripture is that I am is with you and I in whatever challenges we might be facing. Because I am, the great I am is with us, we can have courage. I mentioned earlier that there are two verses in this passage that I've really had a hard time with. And the first Verse was that one that had the pass by uh, piece in it. The second one is this. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Don't you think that's such a weird thing for Mark to mention? I mean, here they are in the midst of this tumultuous storm and Jesus, he's out doing Jesus kind of things and Mark says, they didn't understand the loaves. It just feels out of place to me. He mentions the loaves in this situation because he's trying to tie the two events together, the feeding of 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. You know, the feeding of 5,000, that's a big deal. It's probably the most profound miracle outside of the resurrection, and it's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. And Mark has framed the feeding of 5,000 in such a way as to highlight the fact that the people were out in the wilderness. They were out in the wilderness. They didn't have any food, and a miracle would be required to feed all of these people. It sounds a lot like the Israelites if you wandering in the, in the wilderness. Remember? You think back to the book of Exodus. The Israelites, they wandered in the desert for how many years? 40 years. And yet Yahweh God sent down manna from heaven to, to the Israelites to sustain them as they wandered in the wilderness. And Jesus, he's doing the same thing with the feeding of the 5,000. See, Mark is showing us that Jesus is the new Moses. But in spite, of being a, in spite of being a part of a miraculous feeding and seeing Jesus walking on water, the disciples, they still didn't fully understand who Jesus was. You know, another interesting thing to make note of is that in about a month, we're going to be teaching on the transfiguration where Jesus reveals a little bit more 
of his glory. And, for, and you might think back to that and remember who was with Jesus in that moment. Moses and Elijah. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying to the boys in the boat, hey, fellas, don't you guys get it? I'm the one who passed by Moses in the rock. I'm the one who came to Elijah and passed by. You see how all of this is connected together? But the disciples, their hearts were hardened. And because of that, they mistook Jesus as a ghost. Now, the other thing we need to make note of, and this is important, Jesus wasn't just walking on water as a means of showing uh, that he could do some kind of trick. This wasn't a trick. This was a statement that Jesus was making. Last year, Pastor Brent Cunningham, he spoke over at the Fort Collins campus on what he called chaotic waters. And to help us fully understand what is transpiring in this miraculous water walking scene, Brent provided really good context to what a first century person would have thought when he or she read or heard this passage from Mark. A first century person would have known that the sea was a a scary, dark place. It was a place where monsters of the deep lived, behemoth, Leviathan, they lived there. And they would have easily recalled the story of Daniel, where we read in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was laying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my visions at night, I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea Four great beasts, each different from the other, where did they come from? They came up out of the sea. See, the sea was an abyss, a dangerous place filled with darkness and chaos, a place filled with water spirits, which is why the disciples thought Jesus was a ghost. It made total sense to them that he was a ghost because the deep are where ghosts live. But they would have also remembered the story of Exodus, where the Jews, having left Egypt, they they heading out to the promised land, but before they get there, they come face to face with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army hot in pursuit behind them. And remember what God told Moses to do. He said, Moses, hold your staff over the water. And what happened? The waters parted so that the Hebrews could cross on dry ground. And once they got safely to the other side, the Egyptians started chasing after them and God caused the waters to fall over the Egyptian army. Jesus, in this scene, walking on water, he illustrated to the disciples who was in control of the chaotic waters. Who was in control of the deep of the abyss? It was him. They would have recognized that Jesus is the one above the sea. And he's the only God who could keep the chaotic waters under control. 
much like what Job mentions in chapter, Job chapter 9, where he goes through a long list describing the attributes of God. And then we come to verse 8, where it says, Who alone stretched out the sky and walks upon the sea as on dry land? So, what is the response that people had to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who miraculously feeds them in the wilderness and the one who tramples the chaotic waters? Verse 53 tells us their response. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or the countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Remember, I was here a month ago on Mother's Day, and I preached on the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. You remember that? And what did she do? In her desperation to get healed, she went to Jesus. What did she touch? The fringe of his cloak. See, this crowd, they had heard about that miracle, about what had happened to that woman. And they're like, man, we got to get to Jesus and we just need to touch his cloak and we will be healed. See, the people in this passage moved toward Jesus because Jesus had moved them. And that brings us to the third point in your outline. Jesus pursues us. Which, of course, is the story of the scriptures, isn't it? And the story of God. The story of God is that God is in pursuit of you. He's in pursuit of the heart of man. And we see this God in pursuit from the very opening pages of Genesis all the way to the last chapter in the book of Revelation. And we find it hard for us to believe that the God of the universe would pursue us. But he does. Because he is your biggest fan. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for our gathering this morning in community. Thank you so much for the divinely inspired words of Mark as they are holy and true. Thank you, God, so much for this passage of Scripture where, Jesus, you proclaim your divinity by saying who you are, that you are the great I am, the one who has been, is now, and forever will be, but you also prove to us that you are the divine great I am because you walked on the chaotic waters. It is you, Jesus, who has control of everything. We thank you for that. We pray for those who are here this morning who are facing tumult, chaos in their own lives. Maybe it's personally or in their families or friends. We pray, Jesus, that you would come near to them and reveal to them your glory. Remind them that you are good and that you see them where they're at, that you love them deeply. Holy Spirit, thank you for speaking to each of us this morning 
And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org slash connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.